Hello, this is Cornelius, and the time is 12.41. I'm going to start on this chapter today. It's called The Healing the Wounded Warrior. I was thinking intently about a friend, and I made at 46th Street Clubhouse Alcoholic Anonymous meeting. He attracted me because he came in wearing a keeper and sporting a long gray beard that made it him look more Arab than Jewish but who was I to judge I could see the room suddenly become nervous as he searched for a seat but he could not find one and the only available space was next to the lucky me so he took it and I welcomed it passing him a warm smile signaling I was inviting during the meeting he raised his hand to speak I could tell by his sober honesty he needed a friend so I introduced myself at the end of the meeting he told me his name was Hanan He had strong views, which I found intriguing. Finally, here was a man who was not afraid to speak his mind. We exchanged numbers and wound up talking the next, the same night for a couple of hours. He told me of his crystal meth addiction and his crack addiction and how using both made him sexually compulsive to where he would go to parks to find other men to indulge his physical hunger. He was terribly troubled by the idea of relapse and knew that and knew if he did not leave his apartment, he would relapse. Without hesitation, I invited him to my place for three days, which did not inconvenience me, considering I was desperate for company and out of a need to serve humanity. I figured God had sent him to me to teach me something. There was no way of knowing for sure he was not a psycho, but he assured me he checked out good and I could trust him. He lived in Brooklyn, so I allowed him the day to gather his belongings. He said that he needed to go to a special kosher market to buy kosher food during the Lent holiday. I had never experienced a Jew, Jewish guy who ate everything kosher, but I was curious to see what he would bring up to the Bronx. When he arrived, he looked very paranoid and his thoughts were all over the place. He brought enough food for a Shabbat festival, but I obliged all his peculiarities despite feeling it was going to be a long weekend. There were many strange moments in which I will explain later, but overall, he was a good guest, and we talked all the night and day, trying to uncover the mysteries of sobriety and what it meant in our lives. He introduced me to Manly P. Hall, a well-known mystic, and I introduced him to Sadhguru Jai Vashudev, an Indian yogi and a mystic. I was certain God had put him in my life, so I was very intrigued having him around and hearing his stories that made me see how drugs and alcohol could affect me. All the denial, stubbornness, rejection, isolation, isolation, agitation, compulsiveness, risky sex, foolish faith-based practices, the delusions, the codependence on others to help save me from myself. The contentious hearts, the self-lacerating pain, all I saw in him. And it was painful to see him deal with his issues while also professing his Jewish faith so ardently. I realized in that moment that I was not unique, that addiction affected all those areas of my life similarly. But not to go off topic, the conversation turned spiritual and he told me that he had been living on the pretense that God would keep forgiving him. I assumed he was under some delusion that his belief then justified him going out and destroying his body. I tried helping him see how going back to using would be detrimental to his life. 
I let them know that if people could accept they are ultimately in control of their own lives, we would realize how using it isn't working. I figured Hanan was living with as a slave mentality all his natural born life and through him, I saw my own servitude and was able to clear my own confusion by talking to him. It can be frustrating helping an addict see their true potential in life. And I felt if it was not for my Buddhist practice, I would not be able to connect on the level that I connected with them on. Trying to stay sober was, has been one blessing I can never thank the universe enough for. I got it in that moment and I realized how alcohol was poisoning my body. It ruins my system, distorts my thinking, and creates anxieties in me that only are agitated when I deal with other humans. Then, when I add the metaphysical stuff into the picture, it's all a mess. It was amazing that I had found Hanan when I did. He needed one another. We needed one another, and this power was invaluable in my life. I had, I had amazing courage, and I knew that it was only effects of the drugs that was tugging at his soul, creating a duality within him, making him feel powerless to change. I had to resort to uh, radical intervention, warning him of the worst that could happen if he did not turn his life over and finally determined to be courageous for himself. After the first night, I opened a bit more, explaining my own psychic turmoil and how I could pick up people's frequency and their intentions. I told him how I felt people were sensing my energy, but I did not understand what it was about. Having no understanding of of these abilities and did not not being able to balance or control them made me insecure when people get aggressive with me. Hanan had no clue what I was talking about, so I let it let it be, left it at that, and did not go into detail about the special, specific spiritual attacks against me. I told him that I had gone to see a spiritual guide to explain why I was feeling so much friction from people and how I cannot control the tension when it creeps up involuntarily. One minute the day is going normal and I'm not in my head. Then the next minute I am perceiving negativity around me and thinking people are watching me. I hesitantly, hesitantly told Hanan that I felt these events were not normal and had to be extra normal. Of course, he thought I was all, it was all in my head, but he got verifiable confirmation that others were powerfully picking up my energies when we went out into the city. It started out when me and Hanan went to Hell's Kitchen to attend an Alcoholic Anonymous meeting. We got off the 42nd Street train and stopped inside of a Starbucks. As we waited online, I stepped up to the counter and standing there was a very nasty white girl who totally dismissed me and asked me if I could go in the back of the line so that a large group that was behind me could order first. Before I could respond, she shooed me away with her hand as if I was holding up the line. I was instantly taken off guard and did not know how to respond, but my blood was boiling. I decided to let it go. And get, a, and get behind the now nervous white people who did not say nothing but went ahead and ordered their coffee without defending my right to order first. I immediately knew this was an enemy testing me to see if I would go off. Suddenly a black woman appeared and opened another line and I went into her register and she took my order. Hanan and I took our coffees and sat down in the cafe. As we had some time before the meeting started, we sat next to a white couple who looked as if they were on the first date. But instantly, they lowered their voices and started to pay attention to the black guy and his Jewish copper-wearing friend. White girl, the white girl became visibly nervous. Then they both got up 
and casually walked away, remaining stoically quiet till they got some distance away. Then they resumed their conversation. All the while I was explaining to Hanan how this happened to me daily with no explanation, but it could possibly be spiritual attacks. He did not understand and brushed my concerns off, saying that it was probably all in my head and that I was an addict and addicts think irrationally. And as fast as those words left his mouth, a disheveled white woman with short brown hair approached our table with no apparent reason. She wore a dingy t-shirt and jeans, looked directly at me, peering her brown eyes into my eyes without saying a word. She looked intensely but expressionless as if possessed. I intuitively knew she was trying to see something behind my eyes. Her eyes were open wide and she never blinked. I stared back into her eyes trying to see if I could see evil or good, but her whole posture was a little overbearing. I started to put a shrewd look on my face and I smiled in a conniving way. To my surprise, she mimicked my gesture. When I winked my eye, she winked her eye. All this was happening in front of Hanan, who was now looking at me. She finally asked if I had two dollars, but I was so transfixed in her eyes I didn't want to break contact by disengaging my eyes to look for a couple of dollars, so I shook my head no, but kept my eyes on her brown eyes. They were cryptic, and I felt a little negative frequency, but it was a feminine frequency, so I was not so much scared as much alarmed and astonished that it was finally happening, and I had a witness. I was finally having a manifestation of what I had perceived was happening in the spirit. Like a zombie she, zombie, she walked away, leaving the store, talking to herself. I figured she was demented or schizophrenic, who knows. But Han and I saw, but Hanan and I definitely saw what happened and could not deny it was bizarre. We quickly left the Starbucks and head out the, headed out the door and I had, had had it with all these stupid people for a day, but we still needed to go to the meeting. In that time, I hinted to Hanan that I thought the woman was doing telepathy on me and reading my mind. I was glad that someone witnessed what I had experienced. Now I know I was not going crazy. Hanan was astonished and confused as well. He could not stop ranting about it and began to frustrate me. His energy was all over the place and he did not know how to control the thoughts coming into his mind. And it made me aggressive, impatient, and intolerant. This did not sit well with me, finding that two days he had been in my place draining and now I was ready to be alone. His energy was very toxic and I was convinced he, he was nowhere near ready to accept he needed to change. He was wasting my time and I thought I would sleep with him and thought I would sleep with him, but I tried patiently to keep the focus about our sobriety. He picked up that I was growing irritated and decided not to stay an extra night. I knew how important Lent was to him because he had claimed to be a religious man, but all he could do, talk about was his raunchy sex capades, and I was getting, and and it was getting on my nerves. I suspected, I suspected that the advice that I gave him had run its course, and he was ready to do his own thing, whether that meant going back out and using or not. It was completely powerful, powerless over his addiction, and I had a grasp, and I had to grasp what really goes on in the mind of a person who is powerless. It took a lot out of me to deal with his crap, and though we kept in touch, his problems were more worse than I thought. Funny thing was, the morning, he, the morning that he left, we both did our individual prayers. He read the Torah and did, not, and did a ritual wearing an acrylic talic prayer shawl carrying his Torah and saying the prayer that he'd do. I decided to sit by my altar and open up my Gohansen for the first time in a week and started chanting Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. I started slow, trying 
not to disturb him but after a few minutes i felt this powerful energy come over me and my body began to sweat and i rapidly sped the chant up after five minutes i started rocking back and forth chanting intensely completely transfixed after 10 minutes i noticed hanan sitting on the couch looking at me terrified i wanted to show him i had powers too though he was keeping secrets from me I had always found Jewish people peculiar by the way they handled their identity and I wanted him to know that I felt that I too could possibly be a Hebrew Israelite because the truth always shows through the power of our faith. Even though I never did read the Torah, it did not negate the fact that God lives and breathes through me and the look on Hanan's face gave me, the look that Hanan gave me was pure astonishment. He changed the subject and told me that I should harness my talents and go to get professional training at a place called the Jung Institute in Manhattan. I called the Jung Institute and, and a white lady picked up the phone and started evading questions and acting passive aggressive. So I figured there was something that they were teaching that she did not want me to learn. So I decided to let it go. I was using spiritual guides and did not need some old age psychoanalytical crap taught to me anyway. Hanan slowly started avoiding my calls, and after a few weeks, I had never heard from Hanan again. I hoped that he was sober because he was completely powerless. Fortunate for me, I was in a sober place, and I did not have time for his chaotic personality. I decided, since I wouldn't be able to get special training to learn about the subconscious, I would at least seek help and talk to someone about the madness in my head, so I called the Veterans Affairs and made an appointment to see Mrs. Houston, the social worker. Upon meeting Mrs. Houston, I perceived her as nice, but I soon realized she was triggering some negative transference due to my disposition of sub I subconsciously held for women, specifically black women. Here I was trying to explain to her my situation, opening up to her about my feelings, allowing her into my life, but all I kept thinking about was my closed up mother and how she seemed to be the least bit concerned about my life or cared how I was doing in New York. How could this woman possibly understand me when she was probably thinking I'm offending God for choosing not to reproduce? She never gave, she never said that, but in my head I could hear all the hostile black women who have tried to intimidate me or brush me aside for being gay. I was sure the devil was using her as a vessel to raise up against me and prevent me from healing. I saw in her face that she, that she devil demon that tries to shrink me and reduce me to dust. I saw that overweight black female pushing her baby stroller in front of me in hopes that I feel what she feels and when she's approaching. I saw in her disconcerted eyes the hostile welfare queen aggressively watching me as I sit on the train behaving passive aggressive, bumping me forcefully with her shoulders or scraping me with their arms, with their purse. I was not about to indulge anything that would make me vulnerable to this woman and i think she realized this besides she was not helping me anyway all her responses were all attempts to, di to dismiss how i felt about th the matter by telling me nothing was what i had made out what was made out to be that the oppression i was feeling could be changed by the flip of my wrists this went on for a couple of months as i spoke of the trauma i had experienced by horrible black women and now i was able to release my frustration out on my therapist I think she must have felt uneasy in those moments, but I didn't care. Someone had to pay for causing this much hurt in my heart. Finally, I had an opportunity to tell one of those vicious creatures how I felt and how their hate has minimized me to the point where I do not feel that I have no longer matter. 
I did not feel progress would be made if she remained my therapist, so she referred me to an outside agency where I could continue therapy. The referral was an agency known as the Wounded Warrior Alliance, and I was linked with a psychotherapist who worked with trauma victims completely free of charge. I was excited to be able to talk with someone who had no experience with military because Mrs. Houston was a veteran herself, and that was also triggering considering how black women treated me while I was in our own active duty. I was happy to finally meet with someone that would help me deal with the psychological angst to help me work out my demons, getting them out one at a time. I was eager to get to the underlying issues of what I had perceived was a schizoid personality. How did I become this distrustful of people, so paranoid of my imminent defeat by subterfuge? I would have to wait for this appointment, but in the meantime, I was still seeing Mrs. Houston once a week. After a while, I started skipping her sessions, and I felt less inclined to talk with her about my anger about women. After a couple of weeks, I received a call from the therapist in Manhattan who claimed he worked with veterans in the area of behavioral cognitive therapy. I scheduled my first appointment with a white male therapist. I was still going to AA meetings, though I was not ready to stop drinking. I reasoned that if I was going to die, I was going in my own accord. A friend of mine told me that uh, me of an, another outpatient clinic at Bellevue Hospital informing me they had a substance abuse group meeting that would be free of charge. So I went there and conducted an intake with a psychologist. And after a week, I received a complimentary bill in the mail for $300. I cannot believe I managed to be tricked by the enemy yet again, running me in limbos, seeking the wrong help, only to receive a bill without ever receiving treatment. I figured there was no hope for me in seeking help with an out, outpatient clinic. So I never went back to Bellevue, seeing hospitals as exploitive or exploitive, exploitative of people who are not covered by insurance. And it looked as if my only option would be to wait on my appointment with the Wounded Warrior Alliance and continue to go to church in hopes of finding the answer. The frustrating part of finding the right therapist was that it began to feel like a rat race with my heart. Not entirely ready to give up drinking altogether as I joined my wine occasionally, but I was willing to try anything to control it. I knew I could change, and I saw a better future for me if I did. Mrs. Houston also referred me to a psychiatrist within the VA, but I grew distrustful of him because of all he wanted to do was dope me up on medication, but I didn't feel he was listening to what was going on with me as I explained that my issues were psychological, not psychological, but spiritual. He was from Egypt, so I assumed that he would have an understanding of the matter of my disorder, but like most highly educated and trained black and brown professionals who ascribe to white male-dominated deceptive tactics as any other out-of-touch white paraprofessional, he pretended to have no clue how to heal my soul holistically. I saw it in his eyes that he had suspicious intent to suppress my creativity by prescribing me high doses of Seroquel that would only put me to sleep for 12 hours a day, but he couldn't promise that it would take away the cravings for drinking. I was overall forms of psychotherapy as well as psychotropic therapy, but I was willing to try one last treatment if it was anything different than going to AA meetings. Deep down, I knew I needed something more powerful, yet I had no home church as I was too distrustful of some of the members at Rivers of Living Water to go consistently. I did not like the way one of the female deacons looks at me as if she's, she doesn't trust me, 
Pastor Brown always comes to me and gives me a hug, but a couple of her staff would stay away and never smile when, when we make eye contact. Overall, I get good vibes from the members besides some queen that sits besides, uh, behind the pastor throwing shade at me when I approach to hug him. Doing the meet, 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 meeting greet portions of the servers, but I read straight through him. I cannot imagine what is creating this reaction, but I never take it to heart. I found myself often distracted by the nuances of members at Rivers Church, paying attention to their body language, their facial expressions and attitudes, and this prevents me from giving all, giving my all during service because I am too busy worrying about someone mean-mugging me as if I am the devil. I was not yet convinced about Jewish, this Jewish Jesus, Jesus, but I now suspect that there was something out there that did exist. So that was enough for me. This monstrous idea of being singled out appeared after I told a member that I had come from a Buddhist organization and was seeking more spiritual guidance elsewhere. But I identified as a Buddhist and was not particularly religious. He must have gone back and told the pastor because I started perceiving the first wife shooting hostile stares at me. She probably thought I was an antichrist, but this was all in my mind. It did not help that I want that I walked inside wearing a big old gold unk around my neck. People probably thought I was practicing voodoo or black magic, coming there only to feed on human souls for my powers. I could not find solace even in the gay affirming churches and was beginning to feel something was creating this toxic environment to block me from receiving my healing. Would there ever be a place for me to find lasting healing? I believed that if I changed my drinking habits that I knew that my future would be bright. Two weeks had passed and I finally was going to see the social worker at the Wounded Warrior Alliance, where I met with a licensed clinical social worker who introduced himself as Mr. Delium. He had a swanky posh private office located in Manhattan near Pennsylvania Station. By my first impression, he looked in his early 30s, donning a smooth baby face. We shook hands and I sat down on a plush soft sofa couch across from him. Looking around the room, I could tell that his clients were middle-aged, wealthy white people. But I did not feel intimidated because I was seeing him for free, so I much preferred coming to a fancy office, sitting on a Raymore and Flanagan couch rather than that flimsy task chair at Mrs. Houston's office. He explained the formalities of the program and mentioned he worked with veterans with PTSD. I told him I did not have PTSD, but I'd need help controlling my drinking. So we agreed to meet once a week on Tuesdays till I could figure out on my own terms. I had no intentions of seeing him long term as I did not want some white guy in my head longer than desired. Looking on his wall, I saw that he earned his master's degree at Columbia. So I figured he was smart and would be able to offer me more cookie will offer me more help other than the cookie cutter feedbacks, so I was excited to start my new relationship with Mr. Dillian. I gathered from our first session that I could talk with this guy, and he gave me a lot of feedback, but I chose not to take all of his advice, preparing to allow him to consider changing overnight because I felt that there were things white men couldn't advise to black people considering our history. He expressed he wanted me to stop drinking but he was not recognizing how white people had been the source of my need to escape. Nevertheless, I was willing to continue uh, seeing him because I could not deal with Mrs. Houston. I began to feel I was no longer getting anywhere with her as she pretended not to know the plight of a black gay man 
and she often invalidated my feelings about black women and this added to the source of my depression and, and, and anxiety. I found the staff at the VA ignorant, unprofessional, and by the time I made it to Mrs. Houston's office, I had had it with black women, so I unfortunately unleashed my frustrations on her. Despite those heated moments, I was doing good by controlling my anger, but honestly, I was using my anger as a distraction to avoid admitting I had a substance use problem. I was optimistic to finally see someone who was clinically focused as if it was going to take a lot of skills to get the latent issues surrounding my issues. By, fourth, by the fourth visit with Mr. Dillingham, I felt comfortable with our visits. Unlike being at the VA where I had to curse out the black receptionist for catching an attitude with me, I never had an issue signing in at the front desk at Mr. Dillingham's office. But my, but my streak of problem-free good luck would change on my fifth week visit. Upon walking into the lobby, I approached the security desk to sign my name on the sign-in log, as I had done every week. Behind the desk sat a saint, the same Latin, Latino male security guard, who on this day decided to give me a hard time, asking me to remove my sunglasses so he could see my face. Then he asked me what, I, what room I was going to. Though we agreed it on any other visit, and he would allow me to sign in and go straight up to Mr. Dilliam's office, I figured he needed to exert his authority because an employee was there, but I ignored him and continued toward the elevator. Entering the elevator, I was stunned he would follow me and physically stop the elevator door from closing, though there was another person on the elevator waiting to go up. I thought, who else comes in here wearing a chinchilla fur traper hat and an African print mudcloth trench coat with John, John, big John Barbado shades? I called him an asshole and told him to leave me the hell alone, so he released the door and allowed me to go up. When I made it to my designated floor, I entered the lobby of Mr. Dilliam's office and took a seat, picking up a psychology magazine, waiting for Mr. Dilliam to open the door. To my utter shock, that prick security had the nerve to come up to the office and knock on the lobby door to snitch on me to Mr. Dilliam. Mr. Dilliam came out and spoke briefly to the security guard in the hallway, and when he returned, he did not look pleased, but I didn't care because I was not there to focus on his feelings. I came to talk about mine. Though it was an intense session, I was able to get a lot of my frustrations out, explaining how I had altercations occurring like that in the lobbies all the time. All the while, Mr. Dillium seemed to think that I could have handled the situation better. But it's every therapist's job to flip the script by taking the other person's side when it was clear I was the real victim. His taking sides triggered something dark inside of me, and I wound up talking about the abuses of slavery in the hands of white men. I spoke about how slave women's breasts were torn off by vicious dogs and men's penises castrated all in the hands of men who looked like him. Then I accused him of being a Jew and this accused, uh, accusation started up back and forth. Then I knew I could not trust him. Toward the end of the session, I told him that I applied to graduate school and he asked me which one. <laughs> so I told him Hunter City University of New York, but it was a lie. I wanted to tell him I applied to Columbia, but had this peculiar stare that looked that looked like the stare of my anthropology teacher gives me when I boast about the accomplishments of black people. I cannot put my finger on it, but it's almost a look of astonishment mixed with disbelief or envy that I would consider going to an elite university, less known in Ivy League. I could read all past his pale, fleshy face, but when I... But when I responded I had applied to Hunter, his facial muscles relaxed a bit and I could see that he felt more at ease that I did not apply to the same graduate school as he. 
I do not know what it what was, but I got the impression that he did not like the idea that I thought of myself smart enough to apply to a predominantly white institution. Maybe he felt that I could not be an effective therapist because I still drank alcohol. What was it with white professionals needing to downplay my obvious potential for greatness? Then he went on to tell me that I that he felt that I was not ready for grad school and that it would be too stressful. Then he started projecting his own insecurities of his time working in the field and how he often went home in tears after interviewing children as young as five years old who had endured abuse. Though he had a point about considering quitting drinking, I felt he was projecting his insecurities about his experience as a social worker onto me. This doubt only made me more determined to work harder to keep balance in my life and not allow this alcohol issue to get out of hand because I had everything, every intentions of going straight to graduate school. I let his words of advice go in one ear and not the other because his story was not mine. Though he waited three years to go to grad school, that did not mean that I had to wait until my drinking was under control. Life waits for no one and I was not about to put my life on hold simply because I drank and I did not feel that I should be judged for it. I had to earn my MSW eventually before being licensed, so it did not make sense to put my education on hold for something that I felt that I could not stop at, that I could do stop at any time if I really wanted to. I had already let 10 years go by before pursuing a bachelor's degree. I did not want to further prolong my chances at completing a graduate school when the opportunity was there. I did not say anything to him about not wanting to wait, nor did I mention that I applied to Columbia because he did not want to be happy for me. I could not imagine what he saw my worth as if he could not simply congratulate me on applying to graduate school or to a graduate program. I wanted what was for me because over the past few months, God has encouraged my aspirations to the point where I feel I can accomplish whatever I put my mind to. I wanted more from life, more access to resources, more respect, more opportunities to make a difference in people's lives. And I found it laughable that my therapist would utter out of his mouth that somehow I was not ready to take on the challenges of a social worker. This only proved to me that he did not believe in my potentials because he was a racist and pretended to like me. Anyway, bye Felicia. I swore to keep my academic plans to and my desires of writing a book to myself and only focus on dealing with my immediate concerns like that asshole security guard. And that is the end of this chapter. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you in the next segment. Goodbye.